if somebody has a bad credit score, what is that really saying about the person? That they may not be responsible, that they don't think much of money, that their values about um, where they want to spend their money or how they spend their money, um, you know, that's what's reflected in your credit score. This week, what does your relationship with money say about your relationship? Dr. Karen Sherman weighs in. Stay tuned. I'm going to go ahead and self-promote here. I've co-authored my first book. It's called Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. And it's part biography, part self-help, part leadership book, and a part sports story, and it's very inspirational. It tells the story of the UCLA gymnastics head coach, Valerie Condos-Field, who has become one of the winningest coaches in NCAA history. Yet, she never did gymnastics. In fact, she's never even played competitive sports in her life. She was a professional ballerina. As you can imagine, she has an amazing story, and she is an amazing person, and I'm really proud of the book that we have put together. It's out now wherever books are sold. And again, it is called Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. Oh, and if you read it, please leave a review or email to let me know what you think. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Steve Cooper, editor-in-chief of HitchedMag.com. I am joined once again by the lovely, the brilliant, the original, Dr. Karen Sherman. <laughs> Hi, Karen. Hi, Steve. Uh, Karen is a practicing psychologist in relationship and lifestyle issues for 30 years. Karen is the author of Mindfulness and the Art of Choice, Transform Your Life. She is also the co-author of Marriage Magic, Find It, Keep It, and Make It Last. You can get this and more information at her website, drkarensherman.com. Okay, Karen, so today uh, we are going to talk about the relationship between money and marriage. Um, Mm -hmm. I found this article that was on CNBC, and it actually cites a couple different studies and and research um, and uh, comments from researchers. Um, And they talk about how relationships kind of ebb and flow based on financial stability and credit scores and whatnot. So I thought we'd kind of dig into some of these um, statistical points that they highlight and what they actually mean. So the first thing that I want to bring up is uh, one of the researchers noted uh, those with the highest credit scores were most likely to form long-lasting committed relationships. And the better your financial footing and the higher your credit score when a committed relationship starts, the less likely you are to break up after the first few years, the study showed. Does this surprise you? No, not at all. Um So there are a couple of other factors that we know play into, um, you know, a marriage lasting, um, being educated, waiting until you're a little bit older. And so if you have a, a high credit score, my guess is that you are educated 
um, you know, that you have, excuse me, have established yourself, um, that you are a little bit older in order to already have this high credit score. And so if you have that with both people, then it's not just the high credit score, but what is that high credit score indicating? Mm -hmm. And so, again, the article didn't state that, but my guess would be that if you've got a high credit score, it would be indicative of those other factors as well. And if both of them have it, um, then you're talking about two people that are well-established and are older and are uh, capable of making good decisions. Mm -hmm. And so that's why probably um, they are able to uh, do well in their first several years. And so, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. You know, it's like I was thinking about this uh, as well about how the the shifting demographics of marriage have been taking place. And so, for example, we know that millennials, the millennial generation is getting married at an older age than generations previous. Mm -hmm. Um, And to your point, like, and I think the credit score is a very interesting one because like you were just talking about, like you can't establish a high credit score right out of the gate. You, it it takes time. It takes building Mm -hmm. up credit and a credit history. So we, so going back to this demographic thing. So we know that millennials uh, are marrying later, we also know that they are less likely to divorce than previous generations. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I would be really interested to see the, the slicing of this data to see how the demographics play out if this all falls in line together, mm-hmm. which would be mm-hmm. interesting. Um, okay, so my second question. Uh, one sign of trouble is different credit scores going on to what mm-hmm. we were just talking about. So according mm-hmm. to research by the Federal Reserve Board, the greater the mismatch between a couple's credit scores, the more likely they are to separate within the first five years. Why do you think this is such a strong indicator for trouble? Okay, so one of the things that, and we brought this up before, that money is never about money. Right. It's um, it's representing a whole bunch of other things. And so when I think about this question, I say to myself, okay, so if somebody has a bad credit score, what is that really saying about the person? That they may not be responsible, that they don't think much of money, that their values about um, where they want to spend their money or how they spend their money, um, you know, that's what's reflected in your credit score. And we have to know or remember that when people, two people fall in love, they've got their love goggles on Mm -hmm. and they are being carried into that decision by emotions and not necessarily looking at some very unsexy, practical things. And certainly a credit score is not sexy. Um, But if there's a big mismatch, my guess is it's not necessarily the credit score that is um, per se the issue, but what the credit score is reflecting about who the two different people are in how they conduct themselves as people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope uh, Jess, my wife, doesn't mind me bringing this up. So uh, when Whoops. we, when we, yeah, no, uh, but I think this is a good counter argument about the fact that money isn't about money. So mm-hmm. when we uh, first got together and we got married, 
Um, her credit score was not very good. Mm-hmm. But um, her credit score wasn't very good, not necessarily because of her. Uh, it, her dad, who has since passed away, so I feel also feel comfortable talking about this, um, he had taken out lines of credit in her name mm. and bought, like, cars in a house <laughs> mm. in her name and taken out credit cards in her name, even going back to when she was, like, a little kid. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that had, like, wreaked havoc on her credit. So her credit score and my credit score were radically different when we got together. But it didn't wasn't reflective of her values. Right. So I feel like, to your point about, like, it's um, – there's, there's a separation there. Um, mm-hmm. I understood <clears> – <throat> Even through my love goggles, I understood what her value baseline was, and I saw that it aligned with mine. Right. And and to your point, my credit score was not very good with a similar story that my parents never financed any of my college, um, and I had to take up uh, take out loans up the wazoo uh, in order to uh, get me through college, and therefore my credit wasn't very good. And my husband, uh, I went to him. I was very honest about what the situation was, and you know, I was was a very similar situation as far as um, coming to terms and understanding it. But we were very upfront about what the situation was, and we had a plan of attack to get those loans paid off, which was not going to kill us, mm-hmm. you know, in a very short term. So, you know. I, I gave you my answer, even knowing my background, obviously. <laughs> yeah. um, I still hold to my answer, but there are obviously going to be exceptions, you know, to the to the case. No, um, well, just being one, mine being one. Yeah, no, and I think that's um, – but I do think that probably statistically it, it holds. And I think this also goes back to the demographics we were just talking about. So you, when you were going through college – it was like just what a couple years ago, but it was still before the millennial generation. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and so we now know that on average, I mean, men are marrying at 29 and women at 27. That's long past they've graduated college. Mm-hmm. So those loans, while they're probably still there, are probably not as heavy as when you and Richie got married. And so you know, just going back into the correlation as opposed to the causation, which we right. often talk about. Um, right. But it's just interesting to see how uh, you can you can take all these different data points, line them up on a whiteboard, and then start drawing conclusions about a person and their lifestyle. And statistically, you'll probably be pretty accurate with it, mm-hmm. which is really interesting to me. Um, okay, so then in the next one, uh, one of the researchers commented that, quote, frequently when you have a very high income earner, the other spouse is not working. The underlying, underlying economic disparity is an issue. So uh, my question to you is how can couples create balance in the relationship when the economics might be radically skewed? I love this question. Uh, it recently came up in one of my sessions with couples, uh, a couple I was working with. Relationships are not about equality. Uh-huh. They're about reciprocity. So the couple does not have to make an equal amount of money. 
but each of them has to feel that they're giving in the relationship. And if one spouse is not working, as long as they are contributing to the relationship and the other partner feels that, in fact, the non-working partner is contributing, then it doesn't matter that there's an economic disparity. Mm-hmm. Um, the example that I use is that in the um, Jewish faith, if um, you are brought up to the bima, which is like the uh, podium at, on, on stage for um, an aliyah, which is a blessing, it's considered an honor. Well, who gets called up to the bima? Either people who have made large contributions to the temple, which would equate to the spouse who's making money, mm-hmm. or people who have done a lot of service to the temple, which equates to the non-working spouse. Mm-hmm. So the way that I feel um, it can be balanced is as long as the non-working partner is really making a contribution to the house, to the household or to the marriage. Mm-hmm. I I think I'm going to like write on my wall somewhere your statement about equality and reciprocity. I good. love that. It's so <laughs> good. It's so no, it's 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 like it's really excellent because you're right. Um I think a lot of times people talk about giving and I think we've talked about this before too. Somebody giving, you know, 100% of the relationship um and the other person not living up to it. And it's like, well, you can both give 100%. That's mm-hmm. re- that's reciprocity. Mm-hmm. And your 100% might not look the same. So getting back to Correct. the quality part. But you're saying you're 100%. So I love it. Right. Um, okay, so next question. Uh, now, one thing this study points out is that during robust economic times, divorces go up. And conversely, mm-hmm. when the economy is down, divorces go down. Uh, we've talked about this in the past, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, when a couple starts doing better financially, how can they or what should they do to make sure uh, one of them hasn't been waiting for this escape route with financial security for them to, uh, you know, hit the road? Well, I think that there should be constant um, concern about your marriage, not just when you're at stage four, shall we say. Uh So, I mean, this doesn't surprise me that divorce goes up when the economics are better because then the people have the finances to separate. Mm -hmm. You know, they can maintain two households or... Um, you know, pay for divorce lawyers, which the only people who make out on that are the divorce lawyers, Um, you know, or all sorts of other expenses. Um, And, you know, I now know that many couples, um, since they cannot afford a divorce, will live in the same house, but just in separate areas of the house, um, because it's just too financially difficult to actually get a divorce. But to me, the answer is you don't want to just wait to say, okay, so um, now we're financially able to separate. Let's get to work and really try to make this relationship work. That, that, That should be the relationship should be attended to all along the way. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you don't, you know, you don't get to the point where it's like, oh, okay, so you know, now we could possibly leave each other. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that was your answer because my, my thought on this when I was composing this question was very similar to what we talk about with empty nesters, where we know mm-hmm. there's a spike yeah. when kids leave the house because yes. they haven't been paying attention for 18 years or however long it you know is for the kids to leave, and then poof, all of a sudden they look at each other and like, who the hell are you? Yes, I don't know you anymore? So it's just kind of the same kind of a. Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's a very good analogy um, because you're right. It spikes at that point not only because they've lost connection, but they've been holding on to the marriage for the sake of the children. And now that the kids are out, okay, you know we're not going to really do damage anymore, so we can get divorced. Yeah, and and exactly, yeah, perfect. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, really analogous because a lot of times people, to your point, are holding on to the marriage until they're financially able to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And then, poof, economy booms, they get out. So, mm-hmm. Okay, so um, my last question for you is, so we've been talking about how economy goes up and people leave uh, leave the house. So some people might be listening to this and thinking, geez, I thought becoming financially stable would be good for the marriage. We can finally relax and take some vacations and do, maybe do the remodeling that we've been talking about. But all this info makes it sound like uh, surviving or even struggling financially is the sweet spot because I kind of lock my spouse in. What do you what do you say to that? Well, that's absurd. <laughs> that's <laughs> okay. absurd. Um, you know, as we just said, um, it just sort of um, is a smokescreen. If there's a problem, there's a problem. And there should be attention and care given to a relationship all the time. Um, The rest of it is really like uh, the cherry on, on the Sunday. If you have the money that now maybe you do get vacations or things are a little bit easier, uh, but you're not looking to be struggling. Um, and, uh, that financial struggle isn't what's going to keep the marriage together. It's just going to add another stressor to the relationship. Uh, And even if you don't have money, and so now I'm going to answer the question that you always ask at the end, which Mm -hmm. is, do I have anything more to say? Even if you don't have a lot of money, that doesn't mean that you can't be enjoying each other or doing things that uh, create connection between the two of you. So um, money is a stressor. I mean, obviously, having money makes things easier. But just because you don't have it doesn't mean that um, it has to take away from the marriage. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it will make things harder, but you still can have a satisfying relationship with each other, even though the money is not there to make it easier. Mm-hmm. I I love that. My I have um, an aunt and uncle who, uh, to your point about not needing money, they when they were going out early, I think it was early in their marriage, um, they were, uh, I think, both going through school and whatever. They just didn't have a lot of money at the time. And they took a piece of cardboard and created a Monopoly board out of the mm-hmm. cardboard. And they drew mm-hmm. all the Monopoly properties and the whole bit. And then I don't yeah. know what they used for pieces. But um, they now have that board framed in their house. Huh. A very nice house. Um, yeah. As, as a reminder of 
the, that time. And I just think it's indicative of, you know, you can, you can be really creative to your point about not needing money. Um, if you have that attention to the relationship. So yes, I think yes. that's like a cool thing. Um, well, I don't need to ask my question since you've already fulfilled it. Um, <laughs> uh, we've done this a lot. Um, so with that, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. So thank you so much for your time, Karen. It is always a pleasure. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode. And so before we go, I do want to remind you that you have been listening to Dr. Karen Sherman, who is a practicing psychologist in relationship and lifestyle issues for 30 years. Karen is the author of Mindfulness and the Art of Choice, Transform Your Life. She is the co-author of Marriage Magic, Find It, Keep It, and Make It Last. You can get this information at her website, drkarensherman.com. Uh, of course, you can find this info and much more at our website, hitchmag.com. Uh, and I do, uh, again, recommend uh, subscribing to the newsletter. It's free. It goes out weekly on Monday nights. Um, it takes about 30 seconds to sign up. So you can do that from basically any page on our website, I believe. Uh, and then also, if you like the podcast, if you enjoy listening to it week in, week out, uh, please give it a rating. Um, it helps the discoverability for other people who are looking for some good relationship information when they do the little searches. So um, in advance, that is very much appreciated. And with that, we will sign off. And so until next time, take care, everybody. Each other's eyes, we know that it's showtime. Clear our heads.